Welcome to another edition, Litigation Psychology Podcast. Dr. Bill Kanaski again. This podcast is brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, courtroomsciences.com. Go to the website, everything you want for your litigation support needs, articles, podcasts, you name it. Um, I got to start on my rant uh, today, and, uh, and I, have a, I have a great guest today. Um, and I'm going to bring him in right after this rant. And I want him to jump in on this rant because I think he's going to have some of the same feelings as I do. ESPN and Fox are ruining college sports. My, my poor ACC is now doomed. And my guest is an ACC alumnus. And he knows he's doomed too. And I'm dying to get his thoughts on this. They're going to ruin everything. This is the, the, the greediest thing I've ever seen. Thank you. Well, it started with Texas and Oklahoma. We knew, we knew that the writing was on the wall there. A year goes by, and now we have USC, UCLA going to the Big Ten. I don't know what's going to happen to the ACC. Uh, you got some really good local rivalries there. Um, but money talks, and ESPN and Fox are running this show. I'm, I'm disgusted by it. I mean, is, is Duke Carolina gone forever? It could be. I, 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 I don't know, but on, on that note, I'm going to bring in my guest today, Joe Longfellow from Tallahassee, Florida, trial attorney. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, but I, I feel a lot of the same things, sentiments you feel and you've shared, though I would not just throw it on ESPN and Fox. I mean, clearly those contracts, I mean, I think I read an article last week saying the Big Ten's uh, income per college is going to get up to a hundred million dollars. One hundred big ones. I mean that's <laughs> one hundred. That's, that's real insane. money. It's insane, and I think right now the ACC is at about thirty-five. Um, that's well. You, know. <laughs> you got to admit, though, Bill, we've done some of it to our to ourselves, and, yes. and I'll say that from the aspect of our commissioner uh, in the ACC, in, in my humble yes. opinion, take it for I what it's worth. I totally agree, and and now and now Notre Dame is holding uh, the entire universe hostage. That's that's oh, wonderful, and it, <laughs> and, it and it will for, 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 for some time. Uh, Joe, thank you for coming uh, on on the show. Uh, before we get started, because I have a bunch of questions for you, tell us a little about yourself and tell us a little uh, uh, about your firm. I know that you guys are based up in Tallahassee. Uh, I am in Orlando. I know you're very proud. Uh, FSU uh, alum. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the firm. Yeah, so our firm is Andrews, Crabtree, Knox, and Longfellow. We've got eight attorneys right now, uh, four partners, uh, three associates, and an of counsel. We're looking to add another uh, associate later on this year as uh, the work in the litigation field has continued to increase over the last few years and continues to be on that same trajectory for the future from our perspective and our clients that we represent. I typically focus uh, with one other partner on medical malpractice and then civil rights defense, but the civil rights defense would be specifically to representing law enforcement uh, officers and agencies uh, in North Florida, as well as Central Florida, or I guess Ocala would be about as low as we go on, on that uh, area. But I've been doing this since uh, 2008 is when I joined the firm, passed the bar, took the July bar, passed it, got sworn in in January when I could get uh, some family members that had uh, put some time and my financial efforts to get me uh, through school yeah. uh, to be able to come down and be a part of, of that uh, 
what I what I thought was a bit a big deal at the time, and it is still a big deal to, to get sworn in and all that. Uh, but we uh, are a growing firm. We've been around since two thousand two, uh, or actually no, two thousand. Uh, we've been around so a little over twenty years. Uh, my partners were a part of a major uh, statewide law firm before that that did insurance defense, and then before that. Uh, one of the partners clerked for a judge for several years and two others worked at Holland and Knight. Uh, and so they, they left that realm when Holland Knight was very young, not what it is now. Yeah. And then uh, to the, the defense side, insurance defense side, and got to a point where they felt like it was time to maybe create something on their own. And they did so. And I got to join eight years later and we're continuing to build upon what they've created and moving forward. Like you said, I'm a big FSU grad. We got a family of three. We go to games uh, as often as often as we can. We do have season tickets, but uh, I will admit uh, the last several years have been hard to uh, be committed to go to every game. So, well, you know, it's what it is. But we're excited for this year and our new coach, and excited for what the future holds for our firm. Well, I, I, know, I know that when the Tar Heels are on your schedule, that's an automatic W for you. And I, I don't want to discuss that any further. But you, you mentioned something interesting because I work on um, some of these civil liberty, uh, uh, civil rights uh, defense work in, in the same area as you. Um, I believe the term is deliberate indifference uh, in a lot of those uh, cases. Talk to me about some of the challenges in those cases because those aren't your typical med mal cases. Um, no. And the one thing, that I, I have picked up on those cases, which you you never get in MedMal, like ever, is everything at a jail is on videotape. And I mean everything. Um, tell us about some of the challenges handling those cases compared to maybe your standard MedMal case. Yeah, so the one thing they do have in common is, but it's a very difficult uh, idea to get across to a jury is we're not looking at this hindsight. This is not a oh, we know what the result is, so now we know what they should have done. It's what's at the time. That's the connection those two areas have that are, are good. But the difficulty we're having right now is just the general uh, understanding of the difference between negligence and deliberate indifference yes. with a jury. Yep. Uh, because oftentimes when they hear these cases, they see them mm -hmm. well before they ever make it to uh, the, the, the clerk of court whether that be the federal or the, the state clerk of court where they're being filed, they're in the news. They're going in there, they're seeing these videos, they're seeing parts of them. They're not seeing the entire video yeah. uh, and they're not getting the context. And so there's a lot of bias out there that we're having to overcome as well as the education on what is deliberate indifference versus what it's not. And that comes down to the jury instructions as well as getting the judge on board. Now in federal court, which is where a lot of those cases are filed, it's to our benefit. The 11th Circuit's done a fairly decent job on, on their standard jury instructions. The state court system, at least in Florida, <clears throat> uh, leaves a lot to be desired when it comes to those jury instructions. And every judge has a different opinion as to what should be allowed or, or not allowed. And so trying to get that education beyond my words, because the worst thing that yeah. you hear uh, as a trial attorney is what the lawyer says is not evidence, is not the law. <laughs> well, hold up now. If you're not going to put it in the jury instructions, 
how is a jury supposed to understand what deliberate indifference is? Yeah. What, how does it rise to that level? And why is it, or why should it be okay for them to do something wrong or make a, make a mistake? Or why is it okay to arrest somebody? Because you believe something might be a drug and then it comes back and it's not a drug. Yeah. How, how do you overcome those hurdles? And that's where, you know, it becomes very important, the whole jury selection process. And that's one of the things we're facing right now is yeah. doing an extensive of Wardire or Wadir, however you want to pronounce the, that wonderful term. But um, depends where you're from. <laughs> exactly. How sophisticated you are, right? Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah. Um, now, in my experience as well, um, I find, and again, I try to say this politely, somebody's going to yell at me, somebody always yells at me. Um, I find that, and we're going to talk a lot about witness prep today. Um, I find that witness prep with those employed by, you know, in, in law enforcement uh, are particularly, I think they were always challenging and more difficult um, than standard witness preps. And then in particular, now that um, the view of law enforcement over the last, especially the last two or three years, uh, pretty obviously has become extraordinarily negative um, in the jury pool. Um, what have you seen as far as your ability to work with those witnesses? Because some of them are, are, are pretty rough and pretty hard to connect with in my experience. I would say a lot of them are, yeah. and I don't mean anything derogatory or negative no. about law enforcement. I, I've got a family full of them and I love them, support them. That, that's part of my passion behind doing this area of laws. I actually believe in what they do. And I'm very grateful that somebody is willing to put their lives literally on the line for a minimal amount of, of money because they care. They really do care. Uh, are there some bad actors? Yes. There's bad actors in every industry. Sure. I think what we're seeing, unfortunately, is we're seeing a handful of bad, bad arrests or, or bad law enforcement interactions out of millions that occur. In a yeah. Year. So we're less than 1%, way less than 1% of what we're looking at, but everybody's making that 1% seem like it's a majority of law enforcement. It's not. And so with law enforcement, what I typically see with those types of witnesses is they're very you got some that are very rigid, very sure. stuck. They aren't personable. They don't come across as likable. It's very, this is A, this <laughs> is B, uh, yeah. this is black, this is white, no gray area. And uh, you, you have to either be all A or all B. You can't be somewhere in between, a little bit of both personality-wise. And so one of the things that we've been doing and, and have had to do is you've got to make time to meet with your witnesses. You have to. You cannot prep before trial. I'm, nope. I'm sorry. You don't have time. I know everybody says they're busy. I get it. Uh, you mentioned with Brian Thompson uh, in one of the recent podcasts, talked about time. It's the yeah. one thing we can duplicate and get more of. And we're all busy. And guess what? If you're busy now, you're going to be just as busy right before trial. So you yes. better figure out either get somebody to help you, retain somebody like you guys, or... Tell the client, tell, tell, tell clients you can't take any more cases. I mean, it, it's got to be one or the other. The gives got to be there because that's what you're getting hired for is to come in there and to make sure these witnesses come off as presentable as possible. And if you don't have the skill set, not everybody does. I, I think that's where we've got to be honest. Some people, they're naturally good with witnesses, but maybe they're bad at writing or, or, they're, or, or they're good. Sure. Uh, 
you know, doing four die or, or whatever it may be. They have their strengths. We all know what they are. We should be honest and admit, hey, I'm good here. I need work here. This is where I need to get people either on my team that are that good or I need to go search out and hire. But you've got to make them likable. And that's that's a difficult thing. And it's not just for law enforcement. I find it also with even the med mal, the hospital realm at times, you've got these mindsets because they're trained a certain yes. way. Yes, they are. And they have to look at things a certain way. Uh, and so, you know, for example, nurses or, or, or mid-level providers, what do they do? They're trained to know, have the answer ready by the time the question's over. Well, that's not a good, a good tactic for the position. <laughs> no, it's I, not. To, you don't know where attorney's going. I don't know where I'm going sometimes yeah. with my questions. It depends on your answers. I have an outline, but that may change if you give me, you know, you say something that's not very strong or you make it suggest or sound like there's something else. And so I, I can tell you, you know, I got an example built with a, a client. I had a law enforcement officer I represented two or three years ago. He he had a, a long career, and during that career, he got to see some horrible things and sustained PTSD. I mean, legitimately sustained it. So yeah. he had to, he ultimately had to get retired. He retired on disability. He was seeing a therapist still. He did not want to work with me. He didn't trust anybody. Yeah. He, he was upset. I spent, I went to his house every two weeks for six months before his deposition. Wow. I went to his house. I dressed in a t-shirt shorts. I did not go in my normal, how I would meet with the client when I generally am, am doing that because he needed to have a relationship with me. And so what we did was we started off just shooting the bull. Yeah. Getting to know each other. Connection. That I could build with. He liked to fish. I liked to fish. He liked to hunt. I like to go outside. I like to go outdoors and hunt. Uh, I, I like to do that kind of stuff. So we started talking about that. And just kind of working till he can finally trust me. Yep. Because if he doesn't, tr if you don't not trust it, you're you're not going to get anywhere. It's it's not going to help. Now, whether you meet with him a hundred times or one time, it'll, you're going to get the same result. Yeah, we we talk about a lot of this on the podcast, and 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 when I give speeches around the country, is that um, the concept of witness trust I think is largely assumed by defense counsel, and um, that's um, often not the case and um ignoring that or the inability to assess it uh, appropriately can really uh blow up in your face uh down the road i think a lot a lot of times you know particularly when you're defending a deposition and then your witness says something absolutely insane and something that you did not anticipate <laughs> and then during the break you're like you know what the f was that <laughs> And they're like, well, you know, and they probably should have told you that ahead of time, but either they were scared or, or didn't trust you. I think that's a, that, that's a major factor. Um, Joe, tell us just kind of, uh, kind of generally, uh, it sounds like uh, obviously time um, is a big, is a big factor uh, when it comes to your um, um, witness prep um, philosophy. Uh, how about uh, as far as timing of of witness prep. I remember, you know, back, you know, you and I are, I guess, relative. I feel old. God, I feel old. I'm getting old. I know that. Yeah. I've aged a lot in the last year. I could tell you that much, but I know in the, back in the old day, you know, that, you know, what yeah. my older clients say is they used to prep these 
witnesses the day before the death, sometimes the same morning before the death. When do you like to, what, what is your ideal timeline and what's been effective in your experience? I want to get it. I want to meet the people that I, I need to meet, know, and talk to within the first two weeks of getting a claim. I Why? I, I've got to find out who the real players are. Just because yeah. you've, as an acclaim adjuster has looked at a case and they think this this person, these are the only people that matter. There may be other people out there that are either going to be brought in because the plaintiff's counsel has curiosity. They like yeah. to dig. They like, or fish is what I like to call it. They just throw out that line and see what they can get, if they can get anything to help their claim, particularly yeah. in the uh, civil rights defense stuff where sure. those are just tough claims to get past summary judgment for the plaintiff's bar, no doubt about it. Uh, but usually within two weeks, I want to figure out, let me just talk to me. Tell me something. Tell me about yourself. Tell me if you know why you're involved and kind of just get a general sense of what they know yeah. as well as who they kind of are. And that's usually either going to be, and due to the last couple of years, a lot of that has had to be via Zoom or, or telephone, yeah. which is great in a lot of respects because it allows me to meet more people if they're sure. not all in the same place in the same day. But at the same time, I, I, I personally believe I have a, a, a stronger ability and a, or a, be a better ability to bond with somebody in person than via Zoom. I can connect. There's, there can be a connection if that makes any sense. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I think um, I think Zoom is here to stay. Oh, I agree. Um, I think it represents a huge. Uh, travel time, cost savings, efficiency. But I do also think, you know, that door swings both ways. <laughs> um, so what we've been trying to do, uh, I like to use Zoom. Sometimes you have to, to use it. Um, I find that it's it's really effective for, for follow-up sessions, right? After you've already met in person and you need to maybe do a quick checkup here and there, <laughs> I find it to be really effective. I think if you're starting and finishing with it, um, you may very well miss something. I do think that the level of trust is deeply, <laughs> deeply impacted uh, by whether you're in person or not. So I would, yeah, I would say as advice to other defense counsel <clears throat> out there, um, get in front of your witness uh, in person. If you have to do the zoom follow-ups uh, so be it. But I think that, 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 that one-to-one -one is really important. And I also like the, the fact of your, uh, of your timeline. Um, I would, I do a lot of work in the transportation industry and sometimes that timeline is within 24 hours of an accident before, be, before there's even a, a lawsuit. And when I can tell you, um, um, people that get sued, uh, and you get that paperwork, right. Um, or you get that initial phone call from, from the law firm, every minute feels like an hour. And it eats at you and eats at you. And it does a lot of psychological damage. And so the more you wait to really, you know, work with that witness to gain their trust um, and then to see how they're feeling, you know, emotionally, yeah. uh, I, I think can be, can be, can be really problematic. Now you and I exchanged a couple of, um, of emails on, on some more specific topics uh, related to, um, to witness prep. Uh, how, so use of prior deposit, this is, this came up on our last episode, actually use of prior depositions. I know this, I know a lot of corporate rep depositions can come back, um, 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 to haunt various witnesses. How do you, how do you deal with 
pr prior testimony because oftentimes that's not a positive, right? Oftentimes it's not. And as well as, you know, as well as I do at trial, you know, an admission's an admission. Yeah. I don't have to give context. I can just go and, and state or read from that deposition and, and put it in play. And you get to, as either side, you'll get to decide what you want to counteract that, what testimony is important to you. But it doesn't often make sense, particularly yeah. when you're having to read that kind of stuff and, and it can be used against you. But you've got to be familiar with it. I always ask, yeah. hey, what's going on? And a lot of our clients are uh, clients that we, we do a majority of their work for that hospital or for that agency. And so we know what's out there. We already have it. We were involved with someone in the firm was involved, uh, whether it be a partner or whether it be an associate in that case. And so the, I always like to read them. And, I, and I'm, I'm not going to read them just once. I'm, I'm not going to read the summary. I might start off reading the summary just to kind of get an idea so I understand generally. Yeah. And then I can figure out how much time I need to spend or where I need to go and look at testimony in more detail or more depth than I would in other places. I mean, obviously, the beginning of a depot, the first five pages are a waste. Uh, yeah. It's an <laughs> talking, trying to build a relationship of trust with a witness that's usually adverse. Yes. And you're not going to do it. You're not going to... I don't believe that I'm going to trick you into <laughs> thinking, hey, I'm a good guy, just like you, even though you're we're on opposite sides. Tell me the real story. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen, but yeah. you've got to go through them and you've really got to know what, for example, the corporate reps are going to say, but it's not just the corporate reps that I like to go back and use old testimony. I like to pull testimony from the attorneys. And in my world, there's a handful on, in both both areas, maybe a little bit more than a handful of attorneys that I run into all the time. I know how they're going to ask questions, but it doesn't matter if I tell you as the witness, hey, I'm going to ask the question kind of like how he's going to ask it and this, or she's going to ask it. And it's going to be like this. I find it more effective when you can pull out a transcript and you're, and you're going, okay, so this is how his order is or her order is in asking questions. They ask this question. Here it is. How would you answer to the question? Um, making it more detailed, specific to your case, tailoring it. Now, I don't usually do anything like that until probably my third meeting with, with a witness. Good idea. By then, I've been able to, I've had two opportunities to build a relationship, yeah. either in person or via Zoom. And usually, like you, like you suggested or you do, my second one usually is via Zoom. I've, I've gone down <laughs> once, I'm coming back. I've called you before the first visit. I spoke to you probably for about 30 to 45 minutes explaining the process, how long it's going to take, what, what you realistic, realistically should expect as a, a party defendant to the case or as a witness to the case. And usually if you're a witness, that's pretty important. I'll let you know, hey, you're, you're fairly important in this case. Your care is at, at issue. You're not being sued directly, but... I'm going to need your help the whole way through. And this is to help your name. Uh, but the third one, I'm sitting down with them. We're, we're going to go and we're going to yeah. start asking questions. And I, I like to do more than three. I know that some people say that's an overkill because you said, you know, the old right. days yeah. where people would meet the day before the day of. People are still doing that. I, I'm, yeah. I'm seeing young attorneys. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> and I'm thinking, hold up a second now. And what we do what 98, 99% of every, every case settles. I try yeah. about three to four cases a year, which is quite a heavy load for a defense attorney yeah. uh, in Florida. Uh, and so if my case is going to settle, what am I being hired to do? 
minimize yeah. the risk, minimize the loss. How am I going to do that? It's the discovery phase. It's exactly. got to be. My witness has to do a good job like they yeah. would do in trial. And I've got to have them ready and thinking like they would be thinking at trial. Plus, let's be honest, when you get to trial the, the month before, time is definitely not your friend. You've no, got to, it's now, not. <laughs> you've got to put cases on hold. Yep. <laughs> you got to focus on this. Yeah. And we have a bad habit, and we've been permitted to do this as, as uh, trial attorneys, to start scheduling the crud out of things at the last minute and filing yeah. all the emotions and stuff. And, you know, it just makes everybody's job a little bit more difficult. It tightens the belt on the time frame. So you've got to yeah. not have to, you can't be focusing all on witness prep that at the end. That's where you fine tune things. You need to be way ahead of the game at that at that point. Um, when you instruct a, a witness, now I'm going to throw out one of my pet peeves. Uh, it's highly controversial, but I will argue to the death because I think I have science to prove that I'm right on this, but I want, I want your, uh, I want your opinion on this. Um, I wholeheartedly disagree that um, a witness should be instructed to try to win the case at that position, um, that they should be instructed to argue, you know, with plaintiff's counsel to get points across and kind of like the same thing. It's like, yeah, attorneys are still out there prepping witnesses the day before that still happens. Well, I've seen some disastrous, I mean, disastrous depositions because the witness was instructed like, Hey, you're a home run hitter. You have a chance to win this case at depth and don't take any shit off of this uh, plaintiff attorney. You, you, you stick it right to them. What are your thoughts? Because I, I don't think that I've, I've only seen negative outcomes with that philosophy. I've, I will admit when I was younger, <laughs> I was a lot more, a lot more, a younger attorney. I was a lot more aggressive. Uh, I would say it hasn't changed much. Uh, I can be a little uh, uh, competitive to say the least, I guess. I would can, be nice. I can see that. Uh, but I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. I don't see where you're going to win points here. It, it's kind of like an expert witness. Yeah. My goal is to put you in a corner. I want your opinions locked, sealed, locked, and, and signed. I, I want to know what they are, and I, I may try to get you in some some positions where you might agree with some things. But I know if you're an expert witness, you're not going to go. You know what, Mr. Longfellow, that guy you hired, he's exactly right. I was wrong. They they, they paid me. You know that's not <laughs> going to happen. And it's the same thing with. Uh, your your major witnesses and, and all cases have you have witnesses that are going to be vitally important if they if they fail <laughs> case is over <laughs> yeah yeah it's a matter of how many zeros are behind behind the one yeah that, that the check's going to be writing and, and have you increased the value of the claim because of the risk or have you minimized it and so i think the important point is i want you as the witness come off likable because at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, whether we want to agree with it, whether it's fair or not, our judicial system comes down to, do I like you or do, do I not? Because if I don't like you as a juror, you have no credibility. Yeah. And, and those witnesses that are important to your case, your theme, what you're arguing, why they should go with you, starts to crack that whole foundation. Yeah. And there's nothing, I'm not saying 
you know, if somebody like you guys couldn't come in and help rehab it, but there's only so much you can do when the foundation is cracked all over yeah. and, and you yeah. incorporate the help when you should have, because either it's a tough case, it's a tough, tough witnesses, or it's not your forte. No, that's a very good point. Joe, how do you handle the, uh, and this is a very uncomfortable question uh, and an com- uncomfortable situation for Maine Defense Council. Um, how do you handle the circumstance when you have important fact witnesses that do not agree with each other? Maybe doctors, yeah. nurses, you know what I'm talking about, how this goes. No, no, exactly. And, they, and, that, and that's one of the most difficult uh, scenarios that we often run into is yeah. got contradicting witnesses. And that's the plaintiff's dream, right? Is to get the defense to start fighting against each other and then just sit back and say, hey, I don't care who you hit. You can yeah. clearly see there's a problem here. So yeah. somebody's responsible and everything. So what I, I usually like to do is if there's other attorneys involved, co-counsel, co-defendants in there, I like to reach out to them and say, hey, look, what's your read on the case? What, what, where are you at? What are you seeing? What are you thinking? And kind of bounce some ideas off of them and just get a general sense of where they're at and where their witnesses are. Now, when it's just me and I've got a hospital and I've got some witnesses that have different uh, testimony or opinions, I like to go through the records, for example, in that scenario, yeah. and deal with them and figure out how much is really their recollection, their hope, their aspiration, or CYA, because it, it all comes back to this trust point that, that we, we mentioned earlier. And, uh, and I, I'm a big proponent of building relationships of trust with, with everybody you're dealing with, but particularly witnesses, because sometimes witnesses, the, they're, they're, they're scared. There's no yeah, doubt. Even if they're not course. the center of it, they're, they're afraid. They've never been through this process. It's yeah. very foreign. Um, I'll be honest. I would want to be a witness. Hell You're no. telling me I don't get to ask <laughs> questions. I don't get to push back, but they get to attack me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a situation I want that's to be fun. in. That's <laughs> fun. Yeah, exactly. Where do, where do sign I sign up? up? <laughs> you know, so... You've got to sit back and you got to, you got to hear what they both have to, all they have to say. And then you've got to come back to, I like to come back to my partners or my other associates and say, we need to talk now. This is what's going on. How do we overcome this? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who maybe has it a little bit right, a little bit wrong. And generally speaking, usually it's, they're both, everybody's a little bit off and yeah. they kind of need to understand the whole time frame and understand what's going on. And so when you do that, it allows for like a second meeting or a third meeting where you come in there and you say, I know you're testifying to this, but let's, let's talk about this. Is this logical? Does this make sense? Yeah. Because that's what's going to happen anyways in a deposition, right? The other side is going to push to see how firm you are on your position. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's quote unquote coaching the witness or telling the witness what to say. I don't, cause I don't believe we can do that, but I think we can give them tools and help them understand and see things where maybe they, they need to reconsider where their position is. Not that they're, they're completely off, but yeah. is, there, is there something where maybe they're, uh, my kids would say, disremembering, which I know is not a word, but they're just not remembering it correctly. Yeah, and I think it's particularly in health, healthcare litigation, um, um, particularly whether it be nurse doctor or doctor doctor or nurse nurse, you know, I always try to tell these you know, you're there to te- you're there you're there to testify on your experience, your conduct, your decision making. 
you know, you're nurse A, the fact that nurse B did something, whatever it was, you know, were you there? Were you in that nurse's head? Okay. Then the answer is no to both of those. You know, you shouldn't really be answering that. You could say, yeah, I can't speak for nurse B. You'd have to go ask him or her, um, which I find a lot of healthcare professionals struggle uh, with. They want to be right. And then, but the worst, I mean, nurses are bad enough with that. Um, you get two competing physicians on opinions about something. Man, talk about um, uh, <laughs> hard-headedness and, and sometimes inflexibility to, to just, defer because like i find that physicians particularly um you know those involved in you know high level surgeries and stuff like that surgeons um they don't like to defer they like they like to have an opinion uh even if they are a surgeon and they're maybe you know have an opinion on a cardiologist or a nephrologist uh do you see a lot of that well, you do and one of the and when your initial meetings, you got to remind everybody, look, everybody has a specialty. The way MedMal yeah. works is you opine on your specialty. Now, the other problem we have in medicine that is so different and unique from other uh, industries and other business, business or jobs that people have is the gray area. I don't know any profession that has a larger gray area and a smaller yeah. black and white area yeah. than medicine. I mean, there are so sure. many symptoms and I talk about this with <laughs> all my witnesses. Let's talk about certain symptoms. Like, okay, I'm going to call these symptoms nonspecific. Are you comfortable with that doctor? Yes, I am. Okay. Would this be a nonspecific, this, this, and this. Okay. So what does that mean then? What's your differential is going to be on that diagnosis with that? Well, it could be A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That's my whole point, doctor. Could it be could could it be something else under these circumstances? Is it based on the presentation to you, what you're seeing when you're there that may not be in the medical records? Because not everything has to be documented. And I don't prescribe to the belief that if it's not documented, it didn't happen. That's bull crap. I mean, there's so much you do. There's so much I do that doesn't get documented down either in a time record or in a report and stuff. Hey, I'm doing this, this, and this. Well, it's not really germane or necessary that they know I'm doing this, this. They should assume and expect me to do that. And also going on practices and procedures. What, what do you routinely do? And a lot of nurses, particularly in doctors, you know, well, I do this normally, this scenario, but I don't know if I did it. Okay, well, if you didn't do this, wouldn't you document that? Because that'd be out of the ordinary? Well, yeah. Okay, then why wouldn't you be confident you did this? Well, I just didn't write it down. Okay, well, I get that, but yeah, you do every day. Yeah, boy, those healthcare yeah. cases are tough. Healthcare witnesses are tough. Well, uh, I mean, it's, 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 and I think the toughness is because you're typically, you know, this is not commercial litigation where a company loses money in a contract dispute. It could be a, a bad baby case, a birth injury, a catastrophic stroke or, or, or death. I mean, the amount of emotion going into these witnesses is sky high, right? It, it is. And fighting with each other is not going to make anything better. Uh, you know, the stay in your lane kind of uh, mantra or, or, or philosophy going on now uh, is, is one that we often have to imply. It's because, look, it's not going to do any good arguing with this and that. You did this. Can we justify it? They did this. They might, they're saying they can justify. There's an expert that says that. So you don't, you need to stay away. And 
you know, depositions are based on your personal knowledge, particularly when you're a fact witness or a party witness. It's not based on, you're not an expert, so you don't, you don't need to come in here and get these facts and essentially give a, you know, speculative opinion based on if X, Y, and Z were true, then it would lead this or more likely than not stuff. But I, I think when you have those emotions like that, everybody's upset because yeah. think about it from a physician side, you're questioning my, my, me doing my job, my competence, my knowledge and my, my ability. And, and for doctors, particularly surgeons, name is everything. Reputation yeah. matters more yeah. than anything. Uh, you know, and if that's very important, then we, we got to make sure that we protect. And I think if you go from, go from it or go at it with that perspective saying, Hey, look, I'm trying to protect your name, your reputation. I don't believe you did anything wrong. I've got the support for it, but this is where I need you to be. So we need to focus on this, not, not over here. Don't worry about that right now. Let's focus on this and everything will fall out the way it does. But once again, it goes back to that trust, that trust yeah. aspect of doing that. And also helping them see the big picture at the end of the day. Doctors need to see it. They also need to understand and feel that you're not wasting their time. They're, they're, they're kind of like, uh, yeah. and we spoke about this a lot, the Bill Bauer. I mean, yeah. it makes or breaks us, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is what it is. Whether you like it or not, it, it, it exists for now. And that's how we operate. So you've got to maximize their time. And not waste it because that could be a patient or a surgery they could be doing uh, as well as for you you could be focusing something else that you need to focus yeah. on it's got to be important joe thank you so much for coming on the show i love your linkedin you you post a lot on linkedin i really like your posts uh so i encourage our audience to everybody uh follow uh joe longfellow uh, on linkedin and always uh, put some interesting thoughts almost every day it seems like great job uh joe last last question we're going to fast forward to 2025. This, okay. is a, this is a multiple choice question. FSU will be in the A, SEC, B, Big Ten, C, the ACC, D, none of the above. A. Wow. Inevitable. It's going to be two conferences, Bill. It's uh, college man. football with NIL and everything that's changed over in the the playoffs. It's, in my opinion, we've ruined college football. It is now a minor league yeah. system is what it's turning into. And what I loved about college was you were playing for the opportunity yes. to make the money. Yes. It was a great motivator. Yeah. And I do believe players and individuals need to have rights and they need to be protected. But at what cost? I mean, what? Where does where's the balance? I think we're we've ruined the balance. There's no balancing act there right now, and it's all become about money. And money's important. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I see the ACC is it's the next one with the uh, Grim, Reaper, Grim Reaper at the door now, and it has been coming towards us for a while, unfortunately. I'm I am not looking forward to that, particularly for college. I'm a basketball junkie. I love football, but yeah. I'm a basketball junkie and to to not have Duke Carolina. I, I, I don't I don't know. This is gonna be uh, but I think I think basketball, I think the basketball folks are are watching very closely to see what the football people do and it's they're gonna make their own plan. But the, the thing you got going for you up at Duke and North Carolina up there, those UNC, those schools there, uh the performance with football and the increase there, I think their value has increased over time. Yeah. And 
I don't think they get left. I don't ultimately think they get left in the ACC. I don't know where they go ultimately, but I think they stay together. I think they're a package deal. Uh, and I think they're going to be the Big Ten or it's going to be the SEC. One of those two is going to take them. It's just a matter of who and when. Yeah, because I really want to go to Lincoln, Nebraska in November for a football game. Anyway, Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, be in yeah. touch. Always here to help you, you know, witness prep, focus groups, mock trials, whatever. To our audience, thank you very much for participating. We love doing this podcast for you. Uh, litigation psychology podcast. This is Dr. Bill Kanaski signing off. See you.